This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. It is Journal Club. Daphna, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. We both had, you know, busy weeks, but you had a very interesting week, didn't you? Yeah, you were busy. I mean, um, you had what? You, 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 I don't know. You, you pulled out like yeah, back-to-back yeah, nights back-to-back. and stuff. It's fat. It's fat. No, we, we just came back with uh, Rooney from California. I'm actually just arriving this morning from mm-hmm. the uh, Artificial <laughs> Intelligence Med uh, global summit. So that was a lot of fun. And we got to speak about AI to a bunch of people who are interested in AI in the field of medicine. It wasn't just neonatology and pediatrics. So we were very excited to be representing um, the neonatology group there. And um, we were there with a few colleagues, most importantly from the NeoMind AI group, which we'll feature on the podcast in the coming months uh, if you are curious. But in the meantime, you can go on NeoMind AI. Org, and it's basically a group of neonatologists who are interested in artificial intelligence. So uh, James Barry was there, Ryan McAdams, and George um, Bursley was there. So it was fun. It was, I'm exhausted right now. but Yeah, I'm sure. The red eye. Okay, yeah. but I have two questions. Mm. I always like to ask people when they go to conferences. Sure. What is the coolest thing you learned? And mm. <clears throat> what was the like, most unique thing about the conference? I think the most unique thing about the conference was, and something that you might appreciate as well, is was its design. Like it was, it was designed with the same sort of tenets as Delphi. So there were mm. a lot of young um, trainees, and and there was a, a very collaborative aspect to the conference. It was just everything was in a big room. Yeah. All the breakout sessions were in like a, a big room. like a like a warehouse. Like yeah. that's what it looked like. Yeah, yeah. so cool. That was very cool. <laughs> and um, the coolest thing. So there was a lot of discussions about AI and how, where we're taking AI and medicine, but there were a lot of exhibitors that had a lot of cool tech to present. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some of the, um, some of the, the most interesting things that we saw were um, related to NLP, natural language processing, where basically AI can just read through notes and then say, that patient has a more complicated case of diabetes if you based on what you're writing. Um, and, mm. and so um, starting to, you know, act more as a co-pilot, which is something that we know is the future of AI. So that was, that was kind of cool. Um, people being able to develop like models like ChatGPT to just help you predict things. So like you, could, you can ask um, a machine learning algorithm to learn from your database of patients so that the next patient with neck, you'd be like, hey, do you think this patient could have neck based on what you tell us? So very, very interesting. Cool stuff. Yeah. A lot of the stuff is not tailored towards neonatology, but the applications are 
I mean, mm-hmm. I think a few steps away. So it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Journal club. Journal club does not wait, you know. Um, no. <laughs> journal club waits for no one. Waits for no one. <laughs> okay. You know what? I'm going to get started because I, I have a, an int- a, a paper that um, caught my eye, right? It was in the Journal of Pediatrics. It's uh, it's a pre-proof. And it's actually hard to impress you, so. We'll no, see. it's not that it's, no, that's not what I meant. And don't say that, like, it's not true. I, I'm very curious. I get impressed by a lot of stuff. But the title of the paper was, who needs a second dose of exogenous surfactant? Mm, Question mark. I knew so you I was were like, going to like that one. Yeah, I was like, huh. When who does need a second dose? Uh, the first dose, the first uh, author, <laughs> first, the first author is Lucia Lenciotti, and this is coming out of a, a group from Italy. And obviously, um, <clears throat> what's interesting is that in the background, there's a lot of things that is being mentioned where we know that a single dose of surfactant is sufficient to replenish endogenous alveolar and parenchymal surfactant pools and is adequate for the majority of infants who are born preterm. And yet, uh, about one quarter to one third of patients who receive surfactant eventually require an additional surfactant dose. And they cite a bunch of studies in the background. You can, you can review them that basically look at some of the parameters that were identified possibly as associated with the necessity to get a second dose, mostly being low birth weight, uh, small for gestational age, having worse RDS, um, less antenatal steroids for the mother. Um, and so, and so that that's really interesting. Uh, there were also some some studies mentioning that maybe multiple doses of surfactant are associated with worse outcomes, maybe because of how sick these babies were to begin with. So the objective of the study is really to try to identify clinical predictors of surfactant redosing in a large cohort of like twenty four to thirty two weekers um, in born in the center in Italy. Um, it is a retrospective cohort study. Uh, in the and, and the center is like in the Marchi region of Italy, um, and I think I was thinking about that. Like I'm like retrospective. Is that going to be an issue? But on the other hand, I I had a hard time seeing how prospective would have been feasible as well from a from an ethical standpoint. So I, I don't know. Um, but the the study is worth reviewing, especially with such a catchy title. So um, the infants were having a gestational age of like 24 to 31 and 6, and they were born between 2004 and 2021. Um, they excluded kids who were outborn, major congenital anomalies that died in the first 48 hours of life, um, who had or who had surfactant administration for anything other than RDS. Uh, they were using poractant, and interestingly, I think how exactly their protocols function is, is, is important. So the indication for surfactant are pretty much standard. Uh, throughout the study period, which is if your FIU2 is 30% or more, um, and you're on the PEEP and you had to be on a on CPAP of uh, six. Now, I didn't mention whether there was an IMV, not an IMV. That's that's left out of the paper, I think. And the SATs they were maintaining were between 90 and 92. So, so if you needed more than 30% to be between 90 and 92, you were eligible. Now, what's interesting is that the dose of the surfactant administration changed during the study period. So in the first half, in 2004, 2009, they gave 100 mg per kilo, and then they tr- switched to 200 mg per kilo from 2010 to 2021. So that's interesting. And it's, I don't know exactly how people dose their surfactant, but like the 200 mg per kilo is like your 2.5 ml per kilo, basically, if you're using CuraSurf. 
and the 100 mg per kilo is like your 1.25. Any subsequent dose of surfactant, no matter what at what time point during the study was 100 mg per kilo. The surfactant was given via insure, and uh, the criteria for giving an additional dose was the same as the criteria for giving the initial dose. Um, And then they collected a bunch of complications, clinical data, and all these were based on um, definitions provided by Vaughn, right? So so your your BPD criteria by Vaughn would be like, uh, how much FIU2 are you on at 36 weeks? Um, So so, so take that that in mind. so they, they, overall, they looked at a, a large pool of infants, maybe like 1,600 infants, and then they applied all the exclusion criteria. What they ended up with was they excluded like 300 of them. And then in the, whatever, 1,200 kids that were left, 662 received surfactant. So that's what we're looking at. 462 received a single dose. 170 received two doses. 30 received three doses. So what were some of the things that they found? So Preterm infants who received multiple doses had very specific and peculiar features. They were all lower uh, birth weight, lower gestational age. And interestingly enough, they had higher incidence of SGA diagnosis and maternal hypertension. Um, SGA status versus AGA status, uh, SGA being small for gestational age and AGA being appropriately grown for gestational age. And so what they found was that SGA status and a first dose of surfactant of 100 mg per kilo compared to 200 were risk factor for redosing, while a higher gestational age, later surfactant administration, and milder respiratory severity before surfactant administration were associated with a reduced risk of surfactant retreatment. So, yeah, very interesting that the SGA status, obviously you would want to give a higher dose, and the severity of RDS does play a role, it looks like. Um, interestingly, the use of antenatal corticosteroid was similar between um, the patients who received one or more doses. It was like 94 versus 91%. The duration of mechanical ventilation and CPAP was significantly longer in, infant, in infants who received multiple doses of surfactant versus one. Uh, the FiO2 um, before the first surfactant administration were significantly better in the infants who received only one dose compared to those receiving multiple dose. Again, could be related to the severity of that uh, RDS status. The, S, the uh, SATs, the FiO2, at six hours after the first surfactant administration were also better in the infants who received a single dose compared to multiple doses, almost as if they're like better, they were better responders right from the beginning. The median postnatal age at the time of surfactant administration was significantly um, higher in the infants who received one dose versus those who received multiple doses. So if they were able to um, be, I guess, relatively stable for longer, and they then, then got their dose of surfactant, then they were less likely to need redosing. And the infants who received multiple surfactant doses had significantly higher incidence of BPD death and the combined outcome of BPD or death than those who were managed with a single dose. The conclusion of the authors are that um, this is a study of a large cohort of preterm infants um, ident- and that identified the following variables as risk factor for surfactant redosing, and those included uh, small for gestational age diagnosis, pregnancy-induced hypertension, a lower initial surfactant dose, a lower gestational age, a higher respiratory severity before surfactant administration, and earlier time of the first surfactant administration. They mentioned in the conclusion that SGA and pregnancy-induced hypertension seem to be unmodifiable risk factors in the NICU for surfactant retreatment and in turn for BPD, and that studies focused on the pathophysiology of this condition may help understand the underlying 
reasons for the persistence of oxygen dependency and ameliorate the outcomes for infants born with this condition. I thought this was an interesting study, and I and I, I wanted maybe to get that discussion going with you because um, I think there's a lot of of stigma around the second dose. Some people mm-hmm. shy away from it because they're like, well, it doesn't work. Some people may look at this data and say, well, the kids who do get the second dose actually do worse. But in my opinion, um, even looking at this data, I think, yeah, some sicker infants are going to require um, mm-hmm. uh, more dosing. But um, I think we have yet in the literature uh, to see any uh, any um, uh, robust study that actually helps us figure out that there's maybe causality between second dose of surfactant and worse outcome, which I think is not is not something that can be seen. My impression is that surfactants either work or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, it usually doesn't lead to uh, too much complication. It feels like almost like a shot in the dark. And, and, and so I'm very liberal with giving multiple doses of surfactant, especially as a baby is going through episodes that are known to be associated with surfactant deactivation, like episodes of pneumonia, sepsis, something like that. Um, and so I'm curious what you make of, of this kind of data. Um, does, is this something that, that encourages you to say, well, um, now I, I, I can even target more specific group of babies that, that I might consider a second dose or, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that, I mean, in this study, it's obvious that this was the babies who got two doses were a sicker cohort. Right. That's obvious. So it's, you had to take all of it with that in mind, but you know, there's definitely a group of babies that seems to need and respond to multiple doses. And I think that's where maybe, you know, we think about clinical practice. There are some people who say like, well, if the baby's oxygen is still high again, they didn't, they quote unquote, didn't respond to the first dose when maybe they just need more, you know, and I don't think anybody's really, I don't think we're looking at that enough that like, were they not a responder or did they just need more? Which is super interesting because in the study, because of this thing where they actually had a cohort of kids who got like lower doses, they see that like right. when the dose is too low, they need more. Like like this That's concept right. that you're bringing up is not futile in saying like, well, maybe they need more. It's like it is being shown that like lower doses m- leading to baby need- needing even more surfactant. So yeah, yeah and and obviously there are certain babies like you said, if there's a process which was not this cohort really, but a process of surf surfactant deactivation. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to need more. And you know, I, I, we both like to give surfactant in those non-RDS situations where we know there's surfactant deactivation. Yeah. Um, and then in those babies with true surfactant deficiency, especially based on gestational age, like they're just not making it. So it's going to yeah. run out. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, it's interesting. I agree. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. I had a, a paper that caught my eye. You know, I like to review papers when we uh, when they're timely for our team. <laughs> and we have had a number of, let's just say, surgical babies in the unit. Um, so I thought I thought this was interesting. Uh, prophylactic acid suppression medication to prevent an- anastomotic strictures after esophageal atresia surgery, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This is actually from the Journal of Pediatric Surgery. 
Yeah, I was surprised when you sent me that paper. I was like, man, what, right. is she, what is she doing browsing the Journal of Pediatric Surgery? <laughs> well, you see, it came across through one of our Twitter friends who's not a neonatologist, you know? Uh-huh. So that is the benefit of cross Do you want to give a shout out to that, social media. that Twitter friend? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't oh, know don't have, who it was. Fine. We'll give you credit. <laughs> it was post- a surgeon. Fair enough. When we repost uh, some of the highlights of that paper, we'll, we'll, we'll tag you. For sure, for sure. Um, so they aim to investigate whether patients who were treated prophylactically with acid suppression medication had a reduced incidence of strictures compared to those who did not receive it because the leading thought is that GERD increases stricture formation. And so that's why babies, well, with a number of surgical, post-surgical care um, but specifically um, with TE fistula repair or esophageal atresia repair are on acid suppressing medications. Mm-hmm. So of note, this is this is a systematic review. It's a meta-analysis of a number of papers. Um, the primary outcome was the incidence of ana- anastomotic strictures at least up to one year of age. And the secondary outcomes uh, were uh, threefold. They looked at the incidence of gastroesophageal reflux, um, the incidence of anastomotic leak, and the incidence of esophagitis or esophageal erosion. So they found 142 studies uh, which were screened for eligibility. They used full text papers from 22 studies. Um, and then eventually 12 studies were included in the final analysis. Obviously, they provide details about their search criteria um, and and why they didn't include some of those papers. Um, but all of the studies they ended up with were actually observational in design, um, which I think is obviously a limitation of the study. So they had no randomized control studies identified in the search. They had 1,395 patients evaluated for the primary outcome, um, which as a reminder, again, is the development of strictures. Um, and of the 13 of the 1,395 patients, 753 received acid suppression medication. And in general, um, the team does rate a high risk of bias, um, specifically for the primary outcome, the assessment of esophageal stricture, due to a quote-unquote non-objective method of assessment. Um, so all of those, I think, are limitations of the study. So uh, the the real uh, punchline is that for the primary outcome, there was no statistically significant difference in the rate of esophageal stricture in the group of infants who received prophylactic acid suppression compared to infants who did not receive prophylactic acid suppression. There were more strictures, though, observed in the prophylactic acid suppression group. The pooled odd race group odds ratio was increased to 1.33, but this did not reach statistical significance. And due to this concern for high risk of bias in eight of the studies, a sensitivity analysis was conducted by excluding them, and the pooled results from the two remaining studies were similar to the overall analysis and odds ratio of 1.27, that there were actually more strictures in the prophylactic acid suppression group. For the secondary outcomes, there was no statistically significant differences noticed uh, noted in the incidence of GERD. There were no differences in an anastomotic leak, and there were no difference in esophagitis or esophageal erosion. So I thought this was interesting because it actually showed a trend 
to the opposite of the original hypothesis, um, which is that the prophylact the group that got prophylactic acid suppression seemed to have more strictures. The only other limitation of the paper, and again, as I mentioned, there were many, um, were that there there appeared to be it's not well delineated, but there appeared to be a group who got quote unquote symptomatic treatment with acid suppression medication which is a different group than the babies who got prophylactic just straight out of the gate acid suppression. Um, and I'm not sure how that swayed, you know, the other group. I would have liked to have seen a, a subgroup analysis of those kids. Um, but I thought it was interesting and a reminder that not all of our practices are totally based in so, solid evidence. So let, me, so let me ask you then. Uh-huh. The absence of evidence. Mm. is not the evidence of absence, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm going to tell you what I think in a second, but I'm just curious. So like now you have a kid with a, with a mm. mesophageal atresia post-repair. Are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I, t- I mean, it's tough, right? Because is this, was this paper enough evidence to say not to do it? I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I don't think so. I think there are a number of limitations in the study. I think these kids and I'm saying this with hesitation, these kids definitely seem to have symptomatic reflux. But we're not very good at judging what is symptomatic reflux. That's part of the problem. But beyond, but beyond the reflux, I think, to me, the, the dreaded complication is the stricture. Correct. The, the stricture at the anastomosis site is what, is what you like. If that happens... Yeah, like, I mean, that kid has to go back for surgery. Right, it's, it's a major complication. And, and, and we've seen patients in those scenarios, unfortunately, yeah. where you're, like, you're making progress, you're back on feeds, and you're on minimal respiratory support, and then over the course mm-hmm. of a week, you're, like, you're seeing that stricture shut close, mm-hmm. and then all these secretions, yeah, and you're back, you're back to having to to put back a repogal, to suction, to get those secretions. It's a mess. And it's like... Yeah. Or some of these kids go home. We think they're yeah. doing great. And, and they, then they, and they, they come, come back, back to the PICU. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I think to me, I, I still would... I, I don't know about the duration. You know? I, I mean, I will basically... Right. I'm, I'm a NICU doc, which is kind of nice. I'll let somebody else decide, decide when they want to stop it. But I would say... I mean, obviously, in accordance with our surgical team, Colleagues, I would say yeah. just keep keep it on. Yeah, I think the only concerning thing is that there was a trend to more stricture formation in the group that got prophylactic acid suppression. It wasn't statistically significant, but I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, but it goes against right. I mean, we're we're thinking theoretically. Maybe here. it's not the GERD. Maybe it's not the GERD that causes the stricture formation. All right. Right, and we know that there's not a lot of acidity in the in that ki- in the kid's That's stomach, right. um, and and to be honest, I, I am far f- removed from my my days as a as a chemi- chemistry major to figure out whether <laughs> whether the pH of these secretions how does that affect. <laughs> And maybe maybe that's exactly right. Maybe it's the same thing we're always saying about GER reflux, reflux in neonates. Maybe it's not the acid. Maybe it's just the irritation by the bolus, in which case the antacid is not the right yeah. medication. Maybe right. it's a pro a prokinetic agent. You like pro by the way, she I likes prokinetic. Pro- should we make, we I don't make, have equipoise to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> we should make that disclosure. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think I don't know. I, I you're right. It, I think I think there's a lot of ambivalence. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but we do that, right? Like, I'm not sure if it's going to help or hurt, but the consequence is big, so I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, but I'm I mean, glad people are studying it because what if it's what if it's yeah. worse? And and if you are interested in this dilemma, not this dilemma specifically about um, um, asset suppressants and and and. And surgical repairs. We'll talk about clinical equipoise with Afif El Kufash about PDA and stuff in, mm-hmm. a, in a week or two. Mm-hmm. So uh, stay tuned for that. Anyway, at the end of the day, I guess um, you really would be well within your right to do either if you mm-hmm. if you decided to, to keep them on or not. Anyway, okay, okay. And you you'll have to tackle that question alongside your surgical colleagues and with the family. That's right. Yeah, yeah I agree. All right. My next paper is my highlight of the week. So it's called, um, it's published in JAMA Network Open. It's by Eric Jensen and the NICHD NRN group. And it's called Assessment of Corticosteroid Therapy and Death or Disability According to Pretreatment Risk of Death or BPD in Extremely Preterm Infant. Um, the background of the section is actually quite interesting, right? I mean, they actually... Um, they start, they start by saying something. I'm going to quote the first sentence of the paper. The use of postnatal corticosteroids to prevent bronchopulmonary dysplasia is among the most controversial topics in neonatal medicine. Mm, to which, bold. if Eric is listening, I was like, I was going to think, Eric, the PDA people want to have a word. Well, I think, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time on social media, obviously, and Maybe there we have a maybe we have more PDA people on social media than we do have BPD people. It's a selection maybe that's bias the problem. Yeah. Um, so okay, so that's just like me being anyway. So the background actually goes into the history of like steroid administration for BPD, and it's quite interesting because it goes over like um, the high doses and the, the long term side effects, and it mentions Lex Doyle's work that showed how basically the use of steroids in infants was associated with decreased rates of CP. In babies de- who, who were developing BPD, you're gonna say something. Are you, say, are you about to say something? No, yeah, I was gonna say, this is so wonderfully typical of every Dr. Jensen yeah. paper, where oh, yeah. you get like you you can you can catch up by just reading the latest paper, which is I awesome. read I read this paper yesterday at the airport. Yeah. I was tired, not not like so tired that I couldn't read the paper. But what I'm saying is that when a paper is so well written, like yeah, it's not like it's easy it doesn't read. it's easy, yeah. And so basically, this led to the pediatric societies revising their recommendations, saying that it should be okay to use steroids in very preterm infants who are receiving like mechanical ventilation after maybe one to two weeks of life due to the increased risk of BPD in that specific population. Now, what Eric Jensen is is, and the group are mentioning is that most trial that most trials that informed this revised guideline. Um, initiated corticosteroids in the first week after birth or prescribed higher cumulative doses than the current recommendation. And so what he's saying is that as a result, uh, this, these trial data may not accurately characterize the risk and benefit of postnatal corticosteroid um, treatment strategies used in, in to prevent BPD in contemporary extremely preterm infants. So what they're trying to do is that they're asking the question, does the pretreatment risk of death or grade two or three BPD at 36 weeks modifies the association between postnatal corticosteroid therapy and death or disability at two years corrected age in extremely preterm infants. And so we'll go into that 
uh, in, in a bit with the study design. So this is a retrospective propensity score matched cohort study using the neonatal research network data. The infants who were eligible were born before 27 weeks of gestation between 2011 and 2017. They survived the first postnatal, the first seven postnatal days, and they had two-year uh, death or developmental follow-up data. Um, so it sort of matches the cohort, right? Um, matches the cohort. Even it's a bit more restrictive, but of the BPD outcome estimator that was recently uh, updated. Um, the infants who were enrolled in the uh, neonatal research network hydrocortisone for BPD trial treated with systemic corticosteroids for BPD beginning prior to postnatal day eight or after day 42, kids who had severe congenital disease or who had missing data for key variables were excluded. The primary exposure was systemic steroids, right? We're not talking about inhaled, we're talking about systemic steroids for BPD prevention that's initiated between day eight and day 42 after birth. Uh, this range is specifically selected to exclude, basically, the kids who get steroids in the first week and uh, infants who are treated at ages when serial respiratory support data were no longer recorded. The primary outcome of the study is a composite of death um, between corticosteroid initiation and the two-year follow-up or moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment, which was defined as a barely three uh, score lower than 85. Uh, GMFCS level 2 or higher, moderate to severe CP and or visual or hearing impairment. The secondary outcome was the composite of death or moderate to severe CP, which was defined as GMFCS level 2 or higher and the clinical diagnosis of CP at year 2 follow-up. They estimated, and so that's the key, they estimated the pretreatment probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD at 36 weeks for all eligible untreated controls using a logistic regression model, which is probably just the BPD outcome estimator, that was fitted with 39 fixed and repeatedly measured variables that characterize respiratory state or are known or believed to be associated with the study outcomes. And then they performed this propensity score matching that were based on the probability that infants would receive corticosteroids to prevent BPD, um, and that was used to match treated infants to untreated controls. So what does that look like in terms of the cohort? The cohort then includes 482 matched pairs of infants. The gestational age, the mean gestational age was 24.1 weeks, and 44% were female, uh, 56% male. And what was interesting is that the estimated mean pretreatment probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD at 36 weeks PMA was 0.53% in both matched treated and untreated infants. The mean age at the corticosteroid initiation was 25.2 days, which for some may be considered to be quite late. I mean, I think, uh, but anyway, so it's so, so another topic of discussion. I'm not going to get into that. Of the treated infants, 75% were uh, recipients of dexamethasone, 24% received hydrocortisone, and 0.6% received alternative corticosteroids. So, there were no differences in the adjusted odds of death or moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment or death or moderate to severe CP at two years corrected age associated with corticosteroids therapy. And that's like the big finding of this paper. So like no difference, no difference, you say. Well, that's where Dr. Jensen is so good. So let's, let's get into some of the, let's get into some of the other stuff because that's what, that's what it gets exciting. 
the adjusted odds of death or grade 2, 3 BPD at 36 weeks were also not significant between the two groups with uh, an adjusted OR of 1.35 and a confidence interval that crosses 1. Okay, so where's, where do we get to the good part? There's an inverse association between the pretreatment probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD at 36 weeks and the risk differences for death or disability associated with corticosteroid therapy. What does that mean? For each 10% increase in the probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD, the risk difference for death or moderate to severe NDI associated with corticosteroids decreased by 2.7%. The fitted fitted regression line crossed the x-axis at a probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD of 53%. So what does that mean is that when you're going to initiate corticosteroids, if the risk of death or moderate to severe BPD, or grade 2 to 3 BPD, I'm sorry, this is using the NRN definition, um, is above a certain threshold, then, you're, then you're, it's benefiting the patient, and you have less of the primary outcome. If you're below that number, then you have more of that primary outcome. The corresponding analysis for death or moderate to severe CP also found an inverse association. So the same thing, and for each 10% increase in the pretreatment probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD, the risk difference for death or CP associated with steroid therapy decreased by 3.6%. And so what was the cutoff for that? The fitted regression line crossed the x-axis at a probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD of 40%. And so to me, they have these beautiful graphs in the, they have these beautiful graphs in the paper, which I think are the basis for how we should teach medicine in medical school, which is if an intervention is not given to a patient that is at risk, it's not, it's not only not helping, but it, is actually cause, it may actually cause harm. And if it's given in a patient who has a high risk of the disease you're trying to prevent, then, then it will have a benefit. So we'll post that graph because there was another article. I mean, this, this, there's other, this has been shown in other contexts as well, especially in the context of cognition and, and meta-analyses of certain papers, but I think that's fascinating. There was no evidence, however, of uh, a drug-specific treatment effect for the primary outcome, meaning it didn't really matter which one they were using in terms of hydrocortodexamethasone. And uh, they're mentioning that there was possibly a treatment advantage associated with dexamethasone or death or the outcome of uh, death and moderate to severe CP. But the conclusion of the paper is that in the, I'm going to read this because obviously I think it's very impactful. In this propensity score-matched cohort study, the pretreatment probability of death or grade 2 or 3 BPD at 36 weeks modified the association between postnatal systemic steroids therapy to prevent BPD and the risk of death or disability at two years corrected age. These findings are consistent with prior meta-analyses of randomized control trial and provide important evidence that contemporary dosing strategies for systemic steroids therapy may be associated with a decreased risk of adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes when restricted to preterm infants at moderate to high risk of death or BPD. The possible treatment advantage with dexamethasone found in the present study supports further unbiased evaluation of this medication to prevent BPD and improve neurodevelopment. And so to me, what that means is that you got to use the outcome estimator before you initiate BPD. And if the risk is not above that certain threshold, just back off. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's the, what is your positive predictive value, right? Like, um, and it's, I mean, it's just another nod to the importance of individualized medicine and why maybe for a number of therapies we uh, uh, when we when we pool so many babies like we we don't see a difference because 
it's not help. It may not help everybody, but we have to find the babies that it will help. It's, it's was a, a brilliant way to, to look at the problem. Yeah. My only, my only pro, my only, I guess, mm-hmm. disclaimer concern is that babies who are at risk for BPD are also at risk for like so many other things. Right. So sometimes when we pick the, the therapeutics we are using, we have to weigh like, which one are they more at risk for based on their like, brief postnatal or even prenatal phenotypes, you know? What I think is interesting about how the study was designed, right, is that Eric Jensen always has this concern about what matters is what happens at two years, right? So um, it's interesting to link up the risk of reaching 36 weeks with, with grade two or three BPD or death right. to then the neurodevelopmental outcome, right? So it's almost like you're at time point zero, you're looking at time point one, which is 36 mm-hmm. weeks to then find out what may happen when you're at time point 24 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's interesting, right? Because in with that design, you're able to look at things in a very prospective, like in a very continuous manner from from very early on to very far down the road when it's not just like, oh, at this, what does this time point yield at two years? But it's like, hey, what is the risk? What is What does your risk your baseline risk at time point zero for time point mm-hmm. one affects time mm-hmm. point two. I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, they're not, these variables are not in isolation, right? So no, there's always been this You're concern right. about steroids and neurodevelopmental outcomes, period, uh, about steroids uh, being modulated by what the nutrition looks like post steroids and neurodevelopmental outcomes. But there's this other huge variable that like chronic disease affects neurodevelopmental outcomes, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. taking the risk of one to prevent the risk of the other is yeah. an interesting way to look at the problem. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Meat Johnson. Reckitt Meat Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meatjohnson.com. Yeah. You're up. Oh, well, it's my turn, obviously. <laughs> okay. Um, so I have another study, which I think I can say, I'm not sure if. <laughs> Equipoise to review this. Stop saying equipoise. <laughs> it's just so funny because we were just talking about it. I know, but you like the word, it seems. I do like the word. <laughs> I do like the word. I also really appreciate these topics. So, I mean, you, okay, I'll just tell you. This, this is entitled A Randomized Control Trial of Orofarential mm-hmm. Therapy with Mother's Own Milk for Premature Infants. Um, lead author Nancy Rodriguez. Um, this is in the Journal of Perinatology. So the question really was, the objective was to determine if oropharyngeal therapy with mother's own milk reduces late onset sepsis, which was the primary outcome, uh, and then secondary outcomes of neck, death, length of stay, time to full enteral nutrition, and full oral feeds in preterm infants. So this was a prospective multicenter double-blind randomized control trial. The inclusion criteria included infants um, that met the following uh, criteria, birth weight less than 1,250 grams, a mother that planned to express and provide milk for at least two months, so that was an interesting inclusion criteria, the absence of severe congenital anomalies, admission to the NICU within 24 hours of life, and the ability to begin the treatment protocol before 96 hours of life, which meant that they had to have 
some milk available before that time. Exclusion criteria included birth asphyxia uh, delineated by arterial pH less than 7 on initial blood gas upon NICU admission, maternal um, positive HIV status, maternal drug or substance use that precluded breastfeeding, and presence of a TE fistula. So the team used a one-to-one blocked randomization scheme, which they then stratified by birth weight, and the groups were as following, less than 500 grams, 501 to 749 grams, 750 to 999 grams, and then 1,000 to 1,250 grams. They also random, uh, they also um, stratified it by sex, um, and then the babies were either um, placed in one of two arms. Uh, 0.1 mLs of placebo or 0.1 uh, mLs of mom's own milk to, to each buccal mucosa. So a total of 0.2 mLs of um, study product. This procedure was repeated every two hours for 48 consecutive hours during the initial treatment period, and then every three hours during the quote-unquote extended treatment period, which lasted until the infant reached 30 t- 32 weeks postmenstrual age. They also studied they did another analysis. They looked at the milk, uh, infant's urine, saliva, and stool at a number of four time points um, to evaluate that. But that's a different discussion. Of note, uh, donor human milk was used when mom's own milk was unavailable. And I think that's an important point. So the primary outcome, um, uh, the length of stay, uh, sorry, late onset sepsis was the primary outcome, was defined as the new onset of at least two clinical symptoms with a positive blood culture noted after day of life three, um, and was an identification of an organism known to be cause, a cause of bacteremia. Uh, in the secondary outcomes, NAC was defined according to modified Bell's criteria stage uh, greater than or equal to two with clinical signs of um, x-ray evidence of pneumatosis, portal venous gas with or without pneumoperitoneum. So the baseline results, um, I think it's important uh, to have this discussion about enrollment. So they had an initial target sample of close to 500 infants um, but they did an interim analysis at about 50% enrollment um, that was done by their, you know, uh, safety monitoring board, and they in, in, inferred that they were not likely to find a statistically significant difference that would be robust. And then they uh, extrapolated that to enrolling the additional 239 infants, and they still felt that it was unlikely to give a statistically significant result in the primary outcome of late onset sepsis. So the study was stopped because not because of anything negative per se, but that they felt they were unlikely to reach statistical significance. So a total of 259 infants were uh, enrolled. There were 39 screen failures, um, which meant that uh, there was antenatal enrollment and then the parents, you know, weren't able to sustain um, milk um, or that there was antenatal enrollment and then the mother's pregnancy went too long. So then they were not able to enroll the baby any longer. Other screen failures, uh, I told you, not able to provide enough milk by 96 hours post-delivery. There were seven withdrawals um, 
in the, uh, sorry, there were 10 withdrawals by parents um, because of transfer to another hospital or loss to follow up, or in some cases, parents withdrawing consent. There were 11 total deaths, seven in group A, which is the mom's own milk, and four in group B, which is placebo. The deaths were not unexpected and were a result of extreme prematurity and associated morbidities. Group A deaths were more likely due to severe RDS and pulmonary hypoplasia, MSSA sepsis, twin-to-twin transfusion, extreme prematurity with pulmonary hemorrhage, kidney failure, late-onset sepsis, and neck. Group B deaths were due to early-onset sepsis, extreme prematurity with pulmonary hemorrhage, late-onset sepsis, neck, and intestinal perforation. So their final sample size was 220, and they did use an intention-to-treat analysis. The majority of subjects received greater than 90% of the planned treatments, which given how many treatments are a part of this study, I, I think that's pretty good. Group A infants, uh, this group that received mom's own milk, uh, was uh, 113, on average weighed 882 plus or minus 214 grams, compared to group B infants, the placebo group, 107 infants, which weighed 886 plus or minus 193 grams. So they're about similar. The two groups were also similar in terms of gestational age. Um, The average gestational age of group A was 26.7 versus 26.8 in group B. And all other demographic variables, including the SNAP score, is a measure of kind of illness severity. Um, There was, however, a statistically significant difference in sex. There were uh, many more males in group A, the treatment group, than in group B, the placebo group. And... The the overall results is that there were no significant differences in late-onset sepsis or neck or mortality. In addition, there were no statistically significant differences in length of hospital stay, um, 80 days versus 88 days in the placebo group, time to reach full enteral feeds, 24 days versus 31.6 days in the placebo group, time to reach full oral feeds, 68 days versus 75 days, though there were a trend towards improvement in all of those factors in the group A or the treatment group. Um, there was no significant differences between the two groups in enteral exposure via gavage feed to mother's own milk. So while there wasn't statistically statistical significance, I think there's potentially clinical significance and, and family-rated significance in some of these outcomes, particularly length of stay, time to reach full enteral feedings, and time to reach full oral feeds. Um, The other things I wanted to talk about is in both groups, both the mom's own milk group and the um, placebo group, there was this stimulation of the oral mucosa and oral um, uh, enzymes. So my question to the group is it would have been nice to have a third arm that didn't get any um, oropharyngeal feedings as as another group to look at hold on i'm gonna ask you your thoughts you're saying uh you're saying uh a group that received the milk a group that received the place the placebo was water right sterile water Uh and and you you would have liked a third group with nothing Mm -hmm. can you explain again why why you wanted that third group i 
wonder uh-huh. <laughs> if there's just something about the activation of the oral mucosa. Mm. They were looking for late onset sepsis specifically, and that's that's what they were looking for. Um, were the antimicrobial properties of mother's own milk superior to placebo in protecting against infection? Um so that that's why they picked those two groups. But in terms of all of the outcomes they studied, I, I still wonder if there's a benefit to this oral stimulation. Um, in So I would have just liked to have seen that arm. That's all. Interesting. I also, the other thing I want to say is <laughs> they didn't, they, in both of these groups, they had similar amounts of mom's own milk. Um, but the moms didn't know if the babies were getting placebo or they were getting their own milk. Mm. And I, I think we underestimate how powerful it is for a parent to see their baby be orally fed this product that they have been working tireless, Mm -hmm. you know, tirelessly on. So, so I, I think that's why the third arm of no oral pharyngeal feeding would have been interesting as well. Yeah, no. because I wonder if we would if we if we see more milk in those families whose babies are getting oral pharyngeal feeding. That's all. Yeah, and and I think I mean once you put the once you 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 provide the the sample, like you can probably tell what the kid is. I mean, if anything, just makes its way back to the orifice. Like you can you can you could yeah. Is it really truly blinded at that point? So yeah, you're you're Maybe. probably right. Um, my question to you is: mm. Do you think that we were tr- we were asking too much from this zero point two ml? Of yes, milk? and then because like, the, the authors do say that, like, what is like, the dose sufficient enough? Or, but I'm saying even the yeah is is it the dose? But like. Even if you bring it up, it's like, hey, we're going to give these babies like, I don't know, 0.2 ml, 1 ml, and, and it's going to reduce neck, length of stay, sepsis. Yeah, it's, a lot to it's, ask. it's like, how much? I mean, because I see this as part of a bundle. And I'm like, For yeah, sure. this in combination with other things could have very beneficial effects. But I mean, when you're looking, when you're reading through the paper, you're like, oh, that's a lot of work for these 0.2 mls. <laughs> yeah, Solve all our problems. Sure. Yeah. Solve all our problems. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's this thought, obviously, that the you know we can get some good antibody response, and the thought is you don't need a big, you don't need a large dose for that. And what mm-hmm. can these babies tolerate? Obviously, um, s- but you're not wrong. <laughs> I yeah. think it was a big ask. So my my point in the possible benefits, and that's exactly my. What you said is exactly my point. I think the possible benefits of this intervention is that it may encourage families to bring in more milk, right, right. which that could uh, could pay off in the yeah. – we know it would. We know that babies who get more mom's own milk have and, less of these outcomes. And some of these tables, again, I know they did this analysis and they stopped the trial, but like you wonder if some of that signal or noise – would 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 change if the numbers were dramatically were bigger, right? Because I mean, I think they had they had uh, they had an aim of like five hundred kids, but what if it was two thousand kids? What would we see? Right. I don't know. I mean, it's hard. I'm just. It's easy. For, it's easy from my from my living room to say like, well, just hundreds and roll two thousand kids. Just get more babies. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think these um, these trends and lengths of stay. You know, eight eight shorter days in the NICU. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, feeding full enteral feeds uh, by a week earlier mm-hmm. full oral feeds by a week earlier 
I think those are not small, small things. Right. Um, okay, Daphna. So I think what we're going to go to next is our EBNEO article of the month segment, mm-hmm. um, which you actually went out and interviewed uh, our friend Shovik Mitra, who is the author of today's commentary. So mm-hmm. should Lucky we cue the jingle? Me. Let's do it. Let's cue the jingle. The article of the month commentary. Brought to you by the evidence-based neonatology team. Make sure to follow EBNEO on Twitter at EBNEO or on the web at EBNEO.org. Today we're joined for our EBNEO Article of the Month segment by a good friend of the podcast, Dr. Shovik Mitra, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University and IWK Health, Halifax. Canada. Shovik, today you'll be presenting your commentary in the article, Precision Management of the Patent Ductus Arteriosus and Micropremies. For those that are interested, we did a more brief review of the article in episode um, 120 of the podcast, but we are so honored to have you on today to discuss this important work further. Thanks, Daphna. Happy to be back on the Incubator Podcast to discuss my favorite topic. And uh, (laughs) what makes it really special is that I get the absolute honor and privilege to discuss Reagan's work, who has Mm. left such a lasting legacy in the field of neonatal hemodynamics and neonatology in general. This paper, similar to many other recent work of hers, I think will inspire decades of hemodynamic research, especially in a population that is so conveniently excluded from clinical trials. So what this paper essentially asks is, in preterm infants born between 22 and 24 weeks of gestation, does management of a hemodynamically significant PDA based on early hemodynamic screening using targeted neonatal echocardiography versus echo screening when clinically symptomatic improve the composite outcome of dead before 36 weeks, or severe BPD. Now, this was a single-center retrospective cohort study where they looked at two cohorts, one a historical control between 2010 and 2017, and then a more recent hemodynamic screening cohort after they introduced a comprehensive hemodynamic screening program between 2018 and 2022. The results were really impressive. They included 189 infants in total. And they showed that with implementation of this early hemodynamic screening, they had a 23% absolute increase in survival without severe morbidity, a 20% absolute reduction in severe IVH, a 26% absolute reduction in severe BPD, and a 14% absolute reduction in interventional PDA closure. Now, these results obviously had all of us Mm -hmm. (laughs) sit back and take note of of this paper. And it has created some strong positive and negative reactions in the neo-Twitter world, as we've seen. That's fair. Um, (laughs) So it's great that we are are discussing this on the podcast. Now, uh, just to kind of get into the critique of this paper a little bit, yes, this was 
a retrospective cohort study with historical controls. And yes, they had impressive effect sizes in terms of reduction of death, severe BPD, severe IVH, etc. So obviously, people will definitely raise questions. Did early targeted PDA treatment actually result in such significant improvements? Now, for me, can causality be established? Definitely. No. Not even with advanced um, interrupted time series analysis, unless you do a crossover study and reintroduce the hemodynamic management practices of the historical co cohort for a period of time, which I don't think they would do. But mm -hmm. no one can deny that at the end of the day, they did achieve these outcomes. So my question is, could a comprehensive hemodynamic screening program play a role um, in, in achieving these outcomes? Well, quite likely. And there are a few reasons why I say this. First, I feel that though they reduced the, the median duration of the PDA shunt by 13 days, still will have to acknowledge that Tylenol, which was their primary therapy of choice, was only 50% effective in this population, which goes along with the existing literature on IV Tylenol uh, in very preterm infants, as we showed in our last Cochrane review as well. So questions remain on this drug. Is it the wrong drug for this population or the right drug in the wrong dose? Only future research will tell. So maybe it was not just the PDA treatment. One can argue that it was rather their appreciation for the dynamic nature of the cardiovascular physiology early on in these tiny babies and them reacting appropriately to it. And by saying keeping a close eye on the physiology, I do not necessarily mean over-treating babies. In fact, what they showed was that potentially harmful drugs and therapies that we often use symptomatically in these small babies like nitric oxide, like vasopressors, like dopamine, were actually used much less with hemodynamic screening. So they did manage to show us that there is a difference between watchful waiting and willful ignorance. Mm -hmm. And that may actually translate into meaningful benefit. So what we really need now is we need to replicate this approach in larger, cleaner, unbiased studies to see if there is still a benefit and how big is it. I loved your uh, your quote on watchful waiting, you know, um, versus just ignorance. Um, and, you know, certainly I, I, what I found interesting is, you know, they used a historical cohort, but this is in a unit where uh, echocardio, echo, targeted echo has been go happening for decades. So, you know, it's, it's not like a unit where there was no echo targeted screening and now they've introduced the, the program. So I, I found that to be even more impressive for, for the results kind of in their favor. Um, I guess my one question is for people who, you know, see this and they want to replicate it, you know, the, the intervention was the hemodynamic screening 
but it's not just a screening, it's how they reacted to what they found in the screening. And so I think for people in the community who aren't doing a lot of targeted echo, um, they don't know what that means. Maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Yes. So thank you for bringing up the the, the topic of replication, because we we talk about replication loosely, but if you think about it, what they did was very, very impressive. They managed to do a comprehensive echo in a micropremi in less than 20 minutes with good quality images without causing problems, essentially. That takes a lot of training and expertise. So without expertise, one trying to implement such a comprehensive program where they do um, a targeted screening in all micropremies within the first 12 to 18 hours, and then based on the physiology, um, either provide adequate management, be it treatment of the PDA, or if there is evidence of PPHN, treating the PPHN with nitric oxide, with a follow-up echo, or if there is myocardial dysfunction, treating that appropriately. So that, that takes a lot of training and expertise. And without the expertise, trying to replicate that uh, may actually cause more harm than good. So that is something mm -hmm. that units who are just starting off should keep in mind. And they may have to tailor um, what, uh, their approach based on available expertise. And you've alluded to this a little bit, and we've been talking about it nonstop on the show, but um, that it's really about understanding kind of the underlying physiology and all of the other things happening to the baby, the ventilation, uh, the uh, cardiac output, um, the fluid management. And it's not that they're just looking at the PDA in this evaluation. Absolutely. And that was my big takeaway from this paper that yes, this paper talks about precision management of the PDA. What I feel is that it was more than just precision management of the PDA. It was precision hemodynamic management of the micropremi mm -hmm. that may have resulted, and I say may because, again, of the inherent nature of retrospective studies and all the biases that come with it, um, that may have resulted in such significant improvements. Uh, it could have been just in addition to uh, hemodynamic management, natural improvement over time, which they tried to account for other practice changes, which was not that different. Um, so I feel it could largely be a function of precision hemodynamic management, but we do need to establish that now, as I said, through larger unbiased studies such as randomized trials. Um, I had one question that's loosely related to the article, <laughs> um, especially when you talked about um, kind of the incomplete closure rates um, and uh, this theory that maybe we don't even, even if you're interested in closing the PDA, maybe we don't have to close it, but we can make the shunt smaller. Um, thoughts? Yes, you're right. At the end of the day, what matters is how much blood is dumped into the lungs and how much blood is stolen away from the systemic circulation. And you do not need 
an absolutely closed PDA for that. And this paper also looked at presence of a hemodynamically significant shunt at seven days, and even that was 50%. So in half of the babies, Tylenol did not even manage to achieve lack of hemodynamic significance, even though the PDA was open. So that kind of highlights that we need to go beyond the empirical dosage of 15 per kilo and uh, every six hours and put a bit more work in trying to find out what is the right dose in this population. Um, I know there is a lot of interesting work going on right now, especially in Europe, um, with the, the TRIO Kappa trial of uh, prophylactic acetaminophen therapy. So I'm really looking forward to some of their work. Um, hopefully, in the next few years, we'll get a bit more data on um, ideal dosage of, of Tylenol in these babies. Yeah, and that brings me to my next question. So you mentioned dose. Um, and also in your commentary, you mentioned how some people are, are wanting a, us to just stop talking about the PDA altogether. But what do you think this paper adds um, to the PDA conversation? And what, you know, what does the future of research on the PDA look like? I think this, this paper asks a lot of important questions. We cannot ignore the, the significant benefits that this paper has demonstrated. Um, which could largely be related to precision management of the PDA. And therefore, rather than abandoning PDA research and PDA trials, I think what we really need to do is focus on the highly vulnerable population, which has been so far excluded from randomized trials, these micropremies less than 26 weeks, and focus all our effort, if we have to do a clinical trial, we should be focusing all our effort in this population and finding out which PDAs need to be closed and then use the most effective therapy in the safest manner possible to eliminate the shunt and see if that makes a difference in clinical outcomes. I think that is the direction of, of PDA research. And my last question to you, um, especially because we've talked about this in the past, um, is it's hard to enroll parents uh, of micropremies, our, our nanopremies, the smallest um, babies. Um, any tips about people who are uh, trying to do research in this population? For me, uh, we are running a trial right now as you know, mm -hmm. the Smart PDA trial, which exclusively enrolls less than 26 weekers. Right. Uh, we've just hit uh, our 50% target enrollment. Um, we have had a very good compliance rate um, so far with more than 90% eligible um, patients being enrolled. And the reason for that is we've been honest with parents saying that if if your baby is not enrolled in the trial, given the lay of the land, there is a 50% chance that your baby might get treated early because some physicians would like to do that, or your baby may not get treated because other half of the physicians would like to uh, do the latter. So, So it's actually not been that much of a problem 
enrolling patients because there is a truly there is an equipoise across mm. the board to the point uh, interestingly that there was one center who refused to participate in the trial because they are convinced that treating a PDA does not help and therefore they don't want to expose their babies to early treatment. There was another center who did not want to participate because they're convinced that these babies need to be treated early and therefore they didn't want to randomize their babies to mm -hmm. no treatment. But most of the centers who are in the trial are right in the middle with a lot of intra-institution variability and that has made enrollment easy. So I would say convey that, convey that uncertainty to parents. And we've seen that most parents have, have agreed to find out, to help us find out an answer to this problem. Words to live by. Um, as we close this segment, um, I was just hoping to read this beautiful acknowledgement um, that you included in your commentary. And this commentary is a tribute to the late Dr. Reagan Gissinger's unwavering devotion towards improving the outcomes of the smallest and sickest babies. In her relatively short career, she advanced the field of neonatal hemodynamics in a manner that has not only touched the lives of hundreds of babies, but has also opened several avenues for future hemodynamic research. She will be dearly missed by the neonatal community. Shovik, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you for that, Daphna. Um, sometimes it's nice to, for you to have my back because I, I was not able to actually <laughs> meet up with Shovik on this one. So thank you for... Well, we for, missed you. We missed you. I, I know. I always enjoy talking to Shovik. Uh, mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that. Okay. I have one more paper um, to review. I'm going to the journal. Uh, we were in the Journal of Perinatology. We were in the Journal of Perinatology with your paper. So we're staying in the Journal of Perinatology. It is a paper called Effects of Prophylactic Probiotics, Supplementation mm. on Infants Born Very Preterm or Very Low Birth Weight. Uh, first author is Arpita Chirovulu. I hope I pronounced this correct. My apologies. Um, the background section is what you would expect of a paper on probiotics, right? Um, probiotics are live microorganisms, and when administered in adequate amount, they confer some form of health benefit to the host. That's the definition. Now, what we know is that the intestinal flora of patients with neck has a predominance of proteobacteria and significant reduction in the diversity of species. Um, nematosis, the pathognomonic sign for neck, is due to abnormal bacterial fermentation. And so the theoretical thing is that they're optimizing the preterm gut microbiome with probiotic is a favorable strategy to prevent neck. We're not really going to go into all the different meta-analyses, all the different things um, about the evidence behind probiotics. I think, I think there's a lot of strong evidence to support the use of probiotics. It's still a subject of contention. So I'm, I'm staying, staying far away from this for now. What is the goal of the study, though? The goal of the study is something that I think for any unit who is currently on the fence, doesn't know what to do. I mean, this is the kind of study that's interesting. This is a group that basically decided to report a pre- and post-implementation uh, of probiotic on their cohort uh, to evaluate the effects of routine prophylactic administration of a multi-strain NICU-specific probiotic product in infants who were born preterm um, in basically a unit in North Texas. So I think what's interesting, for example, is that we use probiotics. Um, we don't use the same probiotics that was used in this, in this trial. However, we have colleagues 
from institutions, from our neighboring institutions who are not using it. And they, what did they do? They reached out to us and like, hey, what are your experiences like? So I think people reporting it in this, in this fashion is actually very helpful because you're like, oh, let me, see, let me see what this unit in North Texas who has started a process, what was their number? What, how did they do it? So I think this is not a paper to really shatter the current body of evidence on probiotics, but it does, it does provide a lot of interesting information. So this is done in a unit that admits about 150 very preterm infants in year, each year. Basically, it's a prospective and retrospective study. So it's prospective for the cohort that received the probiotic, but then they retrospectively used uh, data for the, for the... So it's a historical cohort uh, for the control. And they compared basically their experience after one year of using the probiotic and to basically a one-year uh, duration of infants who did not receive the probiotic uh, in the past. They excluded infants who... Um, uh, death or discharge prior to the first dose, uh, death within 48 hours after birth, or complex congenital uh, anomalies. So what is it that they use? So they implemented the routine use of a uh, multi-strain uh, probiotic provided by uh, the company Similac. And basically, for uh, people who are interested, this actually uh, probiotic provides 1 billion colony forming unit for 0.5 grams of the, of, the, of the sample. And it has bifidobacterium lactis, bifidobacterium infantis, and streptococcus thermophilus. Um, what I think is very interesting is that they outlined their whole protocol for giving the probiotic. And I think that's something that people very are also interested in. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go through it. So the probiotic packet is mixed in 3 ml of sterile water in a dedicated place by the nurse. There's a lot of concerns about probiotic contamination, so they did that in a separate space. The first dose was given within 48 hours after birth, after the first feed of mother's colostrum, or donor breast milk if they didn't have colostrum. It was administered through the gavage tube, replacing a feed equivalent to the feeding volume if the infant was receiving less than 3 mLs of feed, and if the feeds were 3 mL or more, then the 3 mL of probiotics was given in addition to the feed. The probiotic was followed by a flush of 0.5 ml of sterile water, and subsequently, uh, the probiotic was dosed once a day until the infant reached 35 weeks postmenstrual age or discharge, whichever was earlier. The contraindication for the administration of the probiotic in their unit was uh, any breach in the gut integrity from conditions such as SIP or NEC stage 2 or more. The primary outcome of the study was NEC. Uh, NEC was described by the group as clinical or radiographic criteria. Basically, the infants must have at least one of the following signs, either bilious gastric aspirate or emesis, abdominal distension, or occult slash gross blood in the stools, in the stool, no fissure, and at least one of the following radiographic findings, pneumatosis, portovenous gas, pneumoperitoneum. Neck needing surgery was specifically differentiated from SIPs. Um, the other outcome of interest were death and late onset sepsis. Other major neonatal outcomes included BPD, ROP and IVH. So basically, um, their prospective group included 125 infants. So they basically took a cohort of 126 infants, and there was no significant differences in the maternal uh, characteristics between the group. The median gestational age at birth was 29 weeks, and the median birth weight was 1,200 grams. Although there was um, no significant differences in the incidence of uh, late-onset sepsis, the median evaluation for suspected late-onset sepsis were significantly lower in the probiotic group 
compared to the no probiotic group. I think that was an interesting finding. Um, the incidence of neck decreased from 6.3 to 1.6% in the probiotic group. However, this was not statistically significant, mm -hmm. but it's an impressive decrease. Mm -hmm. The other characteristics and outcomes, including the incidence of death, were similar between both groups. The median age at which they started the probiotic was 33 hours of life, and they were given until 35 weeks PMA. The growth velocity was significantly higher in the probiotic group compared to the no probiotic group, 14 versus 13 grams per kilo per day. And so you may wonder, you miss, I mean, when you read this, the, the results so far, you say, well, Ben, I don't have issues with 29 weekers getting neck. Like, this is not my problem. My problems are the smaller ones, right? The, the very mm. immature ones. So I don't know if that really applies. So I think the team realized that and they did a subgroup mm -hmm. analysis only including the ELBWs. <clears throat> And so that reduced the cohort to about 76 infants, 34 in the probiotic group, 42 in the historical cohort. And there, what they found was that um, <clears throat> the, there were no cases of neck in the probiotics group compared to an incidence of 14.3% in the historical cohort. Yeah. And that was statistically significant. Statistically significant. <laughs> uh, there were no significant differences in the other outcomes of interest between both groups. I think that's very interesting. The conclusion was that uh, the authors found that routine prophylactic supplementation of a, of a NICU-specific uh, probiotic in infants born very preterm or very low birth weight was associated with a reduction of neck that is consistent with the literature, reported effect size with no adverse effects such as probiotic sepsis. Um, this study adds to the evidence supporting the routine supplementation of probiotic in infants born very preterm or very low birth weight. Further studies need to focus on the optimal length of therapy, additional NICU populations that may benefit, and other effective probiotic and symbiotic combinations, i.e., should we start using this more routinely in the kids who are getting 40 hours of antibiotics? All that stuff, I guess that's mm. what they're, they're hinting at. Very interesting. Yeah, I think so. I thought it was a good paper. Very interesting. Yeah, no, I, it's always important, right? When we get, we got some big papers, we start implementing it in real life right? Um, what does that look like? So Yeah, because I think many people are like, well, do you mix it in the milk room? Do you have a separate space? Sure. Uh, do, you, do you flush the tube afterwards because it sort of sticks to the tubing? Like sure. these, are, these are things that sometimes you can get lost in those big mid-analyses or, or sometimes yeah. in these big trials. So I think- Yeah, and I, I especially, you know, like in our unit, we'll say like the, the, the docs will get together and say, we, we're, we're, we're going to roll this out. We're going to start. And then the nurses are like, how? But how? <laughs> and yeah. they're like, what about this and this and this and this? And you're like, I did not think about any of that. Yeah, it's like me me in the kitchen. It's like, hey, you mix the ingredients together, you bring it to the table, and it's great, right? And I was like, yeah, that's not how it works. But, uh, <laughs> but I think what's interesting also is that um, it's nice because you may think, you know, like maybe you are a relatively smaller unit. Maybe you are not like mm -hmm. the nationwide Boston children's of the world with hundreds and hundreds of babies each day. And you're like, all right, so like I'm a smaller unit. How do I do this? That experience from this unit in North Texas is extremely valuable, mm -hmm. extremely valuable. Yeah. And sharing our protocols, right. Which, you know, they're like, they're like a state secret, like heavy, heavily guarded when, you know, the yeah. goal for all of us, right. is just to help more babies. So. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. I think I think that's it. Um, <laughs> Thanks for anybody who's okay, all the way to the end with us today. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a long one, but it was an interesting series of papers. Yeah. And um, we are um, we're very happy to uh, tease next week's episode, mm-hmm. which, if I'm not mistaken, man, I hope I'm not making a mistake, but we have, we were talking a lot about nutrition today. Exactly. And so it's quite exciting that uh, next week on the podcast, we'll have Amy Hare and Misty Good. Dr. Amy Hare and Dr. Misty Good. So they're rock stars. Phenomenal. Yeah, and- the, on- the only regret I have is that we needed like three hours to do this interview. We needed, so- yeah, we needed to do like a three-hour interview. That That's is true. Right. <laughs> That'll be a part two. But I'm, I mean, for people like me who are not deeply versed into nutrition, like they al- almost converted me. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they were a real pleasure to speak with, obviously. Um, They have such a nice collaboration. And um, I think we got a lot done. I think people are really going to enjoy this episode. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. Um, All right, Daphna, I will see you later. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast or through our website, at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.